Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. Today's guest is Sam Morris, the founder of Zen Warrior Training. Sam coaches business executives and investors on meditation and building resilience and mental toughness. When Sam was 19, he was hit by a drunk driver and the accident left him paraplegic. In this episode, he shares his incredible journey from the fear and hopelessness he experienced in the aftermath of the accident to eventually finding a path forward into a life of joy and happiness. Along the way, he taught himself to be present and find happiness in everyday experience. He shares how he finds meaning in what he calls being of service and living from our hearts. He reminds us that we all want to feel wealthy, yet we forget that what we're after is a feeling, not a number in a bank account. He describes his practice of meditation and how it disciplines his mind. And we compare Sam's philosophy to Warren Buffett's concept of the inner scorecard versus the outer scorecard. There's so much wisdom packed into this one. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sam as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Sam Morris. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real-Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well-lived. Sam, welcome to The Good Life. It's great to be here, Sean. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you could join me. Well, you lead workshops, executive coaching, other practices around helping people overcome obstacles, manage stress, become better leaders, build resilience, build mental toughness, become more present, all of these things. And in this new world of COVID-19, for many of us, the stress level is kind of notched up a bit or two. We're facing some bigger challenges going into a lot of unknowns. It's not exactly clear how we find a path forward for ourselves or our families or our communities. So I'm hoping that you can help us kind of shed some light on this subject of how we might do that and do it in a better way. But before we get into that, I wanted to start or allow you to talk about your own story. How did you get into this kind of work? Well, it starts actually a long time ago. During my adolescence, it was when I first started to realize that a lot of people who thought that they were living successful lives actually weren't living successful lives at all. And oftentimes, the more money people made and the more status they had, the more unhappy they actually were. And they were chasing goals and dreams that weren't actually their goals and dreams, but were more sort of ideas that they had picked up from maybe their family or their culture of what success looked like. And I became acutely aware that this was causing a lot of disharmony in people's lives and that this was also having an impact on the planet as well. This was a a major, major issue. And the, the people who were leading us oftentimes were leading us in this sort of arbitrary direction that was not a holistic direction because they were not following a genuine, personal, soulful path through their lives. And so that was an awareness that I remember having very early on in my life. And I realized that I stumbled across Buddhism when I was in college and realized, boy, this points to a lot of exactly what the problem is. 
that people are attaching themselves to impermanent things. And as a result of doing so, they are causing themselves their own stress and suffering. And that's essentially what the Buddha was teaching. It is the attachments that we have to the impermanent things that create a sense of an illusion, that we are actually living in an illusion of what is creating safety and security in our lives, but is actually contributing to suffering and stress. And that there is actually a way through this by using techniques like meditation to connect to oneself in such a way where one learns to detach their awareness from the circumstances of their lives and their identity and essentially live from a place of pure presence. I really got that. I really understood that. And then in 1999, I was, I just finished leading a cycling trek. I was an outdoor leader at the time. And I just finished leading a cycling trek for nine teenagers across the United States from Seattle to New Jersey. And we cycled 3,800 miles in a little less than two months. And we cooked all our own food and we camped every night. And uh, I remember thinking, this has got to be the most challenging thing that I ever go through in my entire life. I couldn't imagine anything more challenging than that. And only two and a half months after that, I was in a car accident caused by a drunk driver, which left me paraplegic. And so I almost planted the seeds with that thought of, I can't imagine anything more challenging. So suddenly I was in a whole other kind of challenge because I'd gone from this very able-bodied professional athlete to suddenly having all of that taken away from me by losing all of the function and sensation in the lower half of my body. And so it was obviously a deeply traumatic experience. And over the course of the subsequent years, I had to actually practice these principles. I had to learn how to detach from the circumstances of my life in this way that I never thought that I would have to. So essentially, I got the teachings of Buddhism conceptually before the accident, but then I really got the the test of a lifetime to see, okay, are you able to fully let go of even having the lower half of your body? So that was an incredibly intense process, continues to be in many ways. And over the years that followed, I spent cumulatively close to two years completely hospitalized, immobilized in hospital beds, and another two years bedridden at home. So I got really used to the whole isolation and quarantine thing we are experiencing presently with COVID-19. This is kind of nothing in comparison. And also this feeling of complete uncertainty when you're immobilized in hospital beds for months at a time, you don't even know if you have a future. And so I had to really, really train my mind to be in the present moment and not to be in a state of stress in the face of uncertainty and also not to be holding on to my memories of my past and not letting them go too. It just gave me this discipline of really being as present as I possibly could. Well, there's a lot there that I'd like to sort of unpack and talk about in a deeper way if we could. Early on with your exploration of Buddhism, you mentioned that one of the principles, if I call it that, of Buddhism is this idea that 
much of life there is impermanence or we have desire for things that are sort of impermanent. What would you put in there? You mentioned wealth, like status. Talk a little bit more about what does that mean, that things are impermanent and why does that cause so much stress and so many problems for us? Well, a lot of us who have been up and down through cycles of having greater sources of income and then suddenly a loss of income or having that relationship that we assumed was going to last for the rest of our lives that then ended in divorce or maybe a family member who dies unexpectedly. These things can cause tremendous trauma in people's lives, tremendous disruption. And the point that the Buddha was trying to make and the point that I'm making is that we don't have to let these things cause as much disruption if we can allow ourselves to acknowledge their impermanence to begin with. We don't know that we will have X number of dollars in our bank accounts for the rest of our lives. We cannot be assured of that. And a lot of people are finding that the job that they assumed was going to be secure is not secure. They're running into financial stress. This also can precipitate into emotional stress with the relationships because someone was providing a certain amount of income in the relationship and they were identifying with the amount of income and the amount of support that they could provide in the relationship. Now that's no longer present, so it's creating stress on the relationship. And so when we are identifying with the things that we can't guarantee are permanent, we try to essentially create a sense of safety and security on a foundation that is fundamentally insecure. That foundation will always be taken from us at some point. I see what is occurring actually is giving us a great opportunity. This is forcing us to just be in the moment and appreciate that this moment is all that there ever is. And all we ever have is our mind and our body. We don't have anything else. We can't guarantee that anything else will ever be here. I like the image of the sifting sand when you think about the impermanence, when you think about whether it's money or our health or a relationship, there's no guarantee. What is the bedrock that you come down to? Is that the moment you're talking about? Is that where you can be on solid ground and start to sort of build back up in some way? In my perception, there is no bedrock. There is no guarantee. The only guarantee is that for as long as we are alive, we will have our awareness. That is the only guarantee. And everything else is not guaranteed. And for a lot of people, that's terrifying. The idea that nothing is guaranteed is actually terrifying. To me, it is liberating because it means that I can just live in a space of total adaptation and resiliency by embracing the fact that nothing is permanent. To me, that is the ultimate liberation because on some level, my mind is going to recognize that the things that I think that I have, I don't actually ever have. That the material objects that I have, that the car that I have, I don't ever actually have it. I use it. I traded money for my car. I traded money for the place that I live. I traded money for the comforts that I have, but I don't have them really. 
all I ever have is my awareness. To me, there is something incredibly freeing about that. But I think the only reason why I'm able to experience that level of liberation and freedom as a result is I, I have faced the fears of not having those things. I have actually lived in such a way where I basically had nothing for long periods of my life, specifically when I was hospitalized. I had some emotional support and fortunately, I was able to be insured to pay for the hospital visits and so forth. But other than that, I had pretty much nothing. I wasn't even able to create a future in my mind because I had no job. I wasn't able to have a job. I was just in this state of what would look like being a passive experiencer of life. And yet I realized that I was still whole and complete because that was a choice that I was making. And I had to confront some very deep fears around even my own mortality, which once you confront those fears on a regular enough basis, the fear begins to go away. And then you're not operating from a place of, oh my God, what if this goes away? I actually have my full capacity, my full mental capabilities to focus on what I actually want to create. I'm actually not in a state of fight or flight. I'm in a state of how can I serve from this place? My conviction in life is that if we are focused on being of service and living from our hearts, we are always creating value. And as a result, that value that we are creating that ripples out into the world will always create value in return. That's pretty powerful. I want to go back to a moment to where you talked about facing your fears through the accident and looking at your life, being attached to someone who had mobility in their lower legs, this fully active person, you had to, I imagine, let go of that in some way and then face the fear of the future. And I think we're all facing fears of the future right now, maybe not to the degree that you were in that moment of your life. I mean, I know when I face fears about my future, not on the level that you did, but the level that many of us are facing today, you often go to worst case scenario. You take the current trend and you extrapolate down and then you go, oh my gosh, what's going to happen two weeks from now, a month from now? You sort of get frozen. You don't make good decisions. It's really hard to have peace. It's hard to be present. It's hard to have a healthy relationship with your spouse or others or friends to help you through it. So how did you get out of that dark place? Well, the first moment that I got out of that dark place was profound and abrupt. And it was only seven days after the accident happened. I had been lying in this hospital bed. The doctors had me pumped up with morphine for that first week following my spinal fusion surgery. On day seven, they took me off morphine because I was about to be transitioned to a rehabilitation facility. And I went into a full-blown panic attack. I thought, I cannot live like this. I mean, I had lost everything from my navel down. And I thought, there is no way I can go on in my life like this. This is not me. And the things that I love to do are no longer possible. I'm done. And if I had had a sharp object around, I don't know if I would still be here talking with you today. I remember this so vividly. It happened in the middle of the night in this hospital bed. I'm all alone in this dark room. 
and I'm in this panic attack like I had never imagined before. And I heard something in my mind say, boy, I wish I could practice yoga right now. And I thought, well, yoga, why am I even having this thought right now? And then that was followed by the most important part of yoga is the focus on the breath. And you can still breathe. And that was one of the only things that I could actually do at that time was breathe. My lower body was paralyzed. My upper body was, was totally immobilized in a hard shell plastic cast for my spinal fusion surgery to heal. But I could still breathe. And so I started breathing as deeply as I could. And something happened very suddenly where it was like I crossed over some kind of threshold of consciousness. And everything that was on the familiar side of that threshold of consciousness was everything that I'd ever thought that I knew about myself. It was everything that I ever identified with. It was my relationship with my body. It was my relationship with my family. It was my relationship with myself, with my story of my life. And suddenly, I was on the other side of that threshold. On the other side of that threshold, I was pure awareness. I didn't exist as the self that I thought that I was. I was the awareness who was aware that there was a self, but that I was not the content of that self's identity. And as that happened, I felt like my breath became infinite. I no longer could feel the difference between my inhale and my exhale. I felt this infinite source of breath, which I realized is spirit. What we identify as spirit is actually breath. And I just let go into the breath without any relationship to my body or my identity. And in that moment, I realized, wow, I am not any of the conditions that I have associated myself with in my life. I am not any of the things that I have identified with. I am so much more than that. And I realized this is not just me. This is everyone. We are so much more than what we identify with in our lives. We are so much more than the personality structures that we have developed. We are so much more than our job description, our status, our wealth, et cetera. We are eternal. We are eternal beings. And, and from that moment on, that was over 20 years ago, I have been practicing this on a daily basis of continuing to connect to that space of awareness that is not confined by the rigid identity structure that I would otherwise default to. Wow, that's an incredible story. Did you have any prior experience with breath work or with meditation or with yoga before that moment of transcendence? I had been practicing yoga for a few months at that time, and I had been practicing Aikido for about a year and a half. And I also had had some very profound experiences with flow state through snowboarding and through playing music. I knew that there were other states of consciousness where basically all thought would disappear and one could be fully in the moment, but this was a whole other level. So what you described, I've heard other people describe in taking LSD, you lose track of yourself. And I've also heard of people having a similar experience through deep meditation, like a silent retreat. And I think part of probably how I was able to get there was the fact also that starting at the age of 17, I had multiple psychedelic experiences too. So I think it probably helped to condition my mind to be able to go into that space. 
I mean, when I spoke earlier of my adolescence and experiencing these profound awakenings to the way in which people were not living purposeful lives and the way in which that was impacting themselves and other people in the environment, a lot of that was born out of those early psychedelic experiences. It must have taken a lot of courage to cross through that threshold. And I'm really grateful that you were able to do that. We're having this conversation today and you have these wonderful lessons to teach us. It's amazing. I want to go a little deeper into this sense of connectedness and purpose that you were just talking about when you are in that deep state of peacefulness and meditation. You feel connected. Talk a little bit about that and how it relates to, you mentioned serving others, reaching your heart, providing value in the world. How does that connect? Well, in that space, when you are no longer identifying purely with your own ego, in that state, we start to experience joy. We start to experience bliss. We're no longer in that stressful state where we are limited by the structure of our identity and the structure of our unconscious self. We are in a state of joy and bliss, but this is cultivated intentionally. This is something that takes practice to be able to do. Now, that state of joy and bliss is always available inside of us if we train our minds to be able to go and access it. But it takes a lot of discipline and hard work to be able to access that on your own. So why don't more people access this joy? Or maybe another way to put it is what's preventing us from accessing it? Most people are looking for joy and bliss based on the outer circumstances, the external circumstances of their lives conforming to positive expectations. So if this goes right, if the traffic flows smoothly, or if my boss doesn't get upset with me, or if my wife or husband is you know okay today, then I will feel okay. So basically, We are essentially letting the external circumstances kidnap our own minds and saying, as long as those things which I expect to be there are there, then I will feel okay. And if not, I won't feel okay. You know, that sounds a lot like Warren Buffett's concept of the inner scorecard versus the outer scorecard. The inner scorecard is where you set your own markers for success internally and they're under your own control, whereas the outer scorecard is where you look to others to validate your success or your self-worth. And Buffett says one of the keys to life and one of the keys to successfully investing or success in business is to have an inner scorecard. I'm curious, what's the role that meditation plays in all this? If my plane doesn't leave on time, I won't feel okay. Well, we've just allowed that to happen. So the practice of meditation is going, I am not allowing anything outside of myself to dictate how I feel inside. And I am going to discipline myself until no external circumstances define my internal experience. My internal experience is sacred. And so that's really ultimately what meditation is all about. Now, from that space, when you're able to access that inner joy and bliss, you naturally want to serve. You want to give that energy. You want to bring more happiness to your family. 
You want to bring more happiness to the world. You want to create more value in the world, but from an organic place, not from a I have to, not from I need to do this in order to put money in my bank account, but because it really feels good. You just want to share the joy that you would have connected to. I love that concept of the if-then. It elaborates so well, the kind of paradox of joy where we say, yeah, I'll be joyful if this happens, then I'll allow myself to be happy. I'll reach some kind of state. And we're sort of taking that joy, which is ours by nature, if we just knew how to tap into it, and we've attached it to some external circumstance where often we don't even have control. Joy is what we're all after anyway. So why would we let that go or give it to somebody else? Well, it's because we've unconsciously been trained and conditioned by our environment to seek pleasure as joy and to try to avoid pain. I've been through adequate pain to realize that I was never going to make the pain go away. If I wanted to live joyfully, I better learn how to find that joy inside of myself despite the circumstances, not because not with the expectation that the external environment was going to conform. You also mentioned that when you let go of the if-then sort of happiness desires, Naval Ravikant described desire as a contract that we have with ourselves to be miserable until we get what we think we want. Sometimes when I think I really need this or that to happen, whether it's status or wealth or whatever, and it's like, do I really? I mean, if I can let go of that and just live my life today and be more grateful of what I have today, then I don't have to be miserable until that happens. And if it ever happens, it, it'll happen for the right reasons. But you were saying that once you kind of unlock that, naturally you start thinking about others. I'm really interested in that, in this desire to help. What is it about that desire to help others? Or you said add value to the world. What do you mean by that? We can all relate to experiences that we've had where we've just felt good. You know, we've just felt that sense of joy inside of us. You naturally gravitate towards wanting to share it. You can't not share it. It wants to be shared. You don't want to hold it all to yourself. You want to share that joy. You want to share that sense of wealth. It just feels like there's an infinite abundant supply of joy and it's more than you need. It's more than you need to hold on to. And you also realize that when you share it, you actually get more of it, that it actually comes back and it impacts you by sharing it, you receive more. We've all had moments of those experiences in our lives. My practice is to more consistently live in that space in as many moments as I possibly can. And to realize that this is an inner space that is accessible at all times. And all I have to do is practice finding the joy inside of myself, connecting to that space inside of myself, and then naturally sharing from that, and then receiving the wealth that comes back as a result. It strikes me that if we can cultivate this discipline so that no external circumstance can dictate our internal joy, we can maintain that inner scorecard. That's a powerful tool that can help us through COVID-19 in these challenging times. If we can begin to shift to this new paradigm, if we can use this COVID-19 time as an opportunity for this type of deep introspection and to realize that this is not a time to sort of hoard and freak out and go into panic, this is actually a time to be generous with what we do have. 
no matter what that is. Now, we might not have nearly as much money as we had just a few months ago. You know, people's stocks might have plummeted, et cetera, but we still have our hearts. We still have our minds. There's still always something, no matter how much is taken from you, you always have your core being that is always here. You can always be generous from that core being. And in doing so, you're creating value in the world. You're creating values simply through sharing yourself, simply through sharing love with your family, volunteering in some way. These types of things, it has a feedback loop. When we are living from that true space of generosity, not because we think that we should in order to get something, that's still living in that old paradigm of, I need to get something. That's putting the getting something ahead of the generosity. So it's not from that spirit of getting something. This is from the spirit of acknowledging that generosity has a return. Now, if we stay at the level of panic, we're going to miss this opportunity. But if we use this time as an opportunity for deep introspection and to see that this principle of nature of giving and receiving is always there, we can actually step into a whole new version of ourselves and come out the other side more joyful, more connected to other people, and living more on purpose rather than just trying to get something out of life. So one way forward through this COVID-19 is to look beyond ourselves and look outward and think, how can we help others? I have to admit that my amygdala got hijacked a few times in the last month where the stock market's crashing. I'm thinking about my business clients that are drying up. My income's going to be much lower. All these fears start to set in and you start looking inward, right? I mean, that's the natural place that our brain wants to go when the amygdala is taken over. It's like, okay, how am I going to figure this out for myself and protect my this and that? The times that I get out of that and think about someone else is actually what you're saying is that's the way forward. Yes, it's absolutely true. There is an innate sort of a, a system, essentially, and that we are innately interconnected, that there really isn't the type of separation between self that we think there is. We have the perception that there's a Sam here and that there's a Sean there. But really, at a more fundamental level, there's a giving and receiving where there is an innate connection between all beings. And when we are giving, the more value I can offer you here right now, the more that's going to affect me. You know, And, and by getting my own selfish interests out of the way and just focusing on how can I offer Sean and his audience as much value as I possibly can right now without any expectations of any outcome, I naturally then am able to receive in ways that I don't even know yet, I'm able to receive value. How do we really make it happen? I think in the time we have left, I'd like to offer some advice or discussion around those of us who are not as well practiced at meditation, what might we do? And, and I'll just give you a little example of where I am and maybe others in the audience can relate. I have tried to meditate at you know starting at five minutes or 10 minutes and sometimes up to 15. As I'm going through a practice of breathing and trying to quiet my mind, of course, these thoughts pop up. They're often these if-then statements that we've been talking about, or there's some desire about the future. Oh, I've got to do this to make sure that this happens. So, of course, I kind of catch myself, try to let it go and get back to that state. That's kind of where I am. 
thoughts come and they derail me. And then I try to bring myself back. And then I play the little game with my mind to really tap into what you're talking about. I've got to go further. So what can we do? How do we get there? And how does breathing fit into it? What you're describing is the most classic experience in the world. Going into a meditation, noticing your thoughts, but then kind of being derailed by your thoughts. And the the thoughts then become the most dominant part of your experience. Now, thoughts are the language of the mind and feelings are the language of the body. What we have to do is we have to create a coherent connection between our mind and that which we actually want. And so that which we actually want is we want a feeling. We're not going for a thought experience. We're not going for more thoughts about ourselves. We're going for a feeling. If we want to feel wealthy and we place, and then we decide that the only way to feel wealthy is to work harder and stress out more, well, we're actually training our minds and bodies to go into a stress response and that that is the only way to feel a sense of wealth. Now, does that sound wealthy to you? That doesn't sound wealthy to me. No matter how much money you have in your bank account from working hard and stressing out, you're not going to feel wealthy because your mind and body has been trained around stress versus wealth. Now, wealth is a feeling inside of us. I don't have to have millions of dollars in my bank account to feel a sense of wealth. I have learned that the hard way, that wealth is a choice of an experience of a feeling inside of me that is available whether I have millions of dollars or whether I have zero dollars. That is when the monks are meditating, they're meditating to find that sense of wealth that is independent of circumstance. They are actually giving up all of their material possessions to find that inner wealth independent of the external circumstances and independent of the material objects in their lives. So what we need to do is we need to connect to that feeling of wealth inside of us. Now, that feeling of wealth is really pretty consistent with the feeling of joy and freedom. Joy and freedom is what we're actually going for. When we're looking for more money, we're looking for more wealth, we're looking for better relationships, we're actually looking for joy and freedom. That's all we're really ever looking for. And that is an inner state. We can cultivate that inner state, but we can't cultivate it through thought alone. We can't cultivate it through simply closing our eyes. We actually have to start to breathe and circulate the energy through our body. By breathing and circulating energy through your body, the first thing that you'll notice is all of the ways in which you don't feel wealthy. You'll notice all of the ways in which you just feel uncomfortable. And then all of those things, what they are going to do is they are going to provoke your mind to try to stop doing what you're doing. They're going to go, okay, is this over? Am I done already? Is the five minutes up? Can I please just get on with my life? I hate doing this. There's going to be all of this mental chatter. And that mental chatter is because we want to avoid confronting that uncomfortable feeling, whatever that is. But if we can stick with it, if we can notice the uncomfortable feeling, instead of trying to make it go away, or instead of trying to dissociate from it, by defaulting to stopping the meditation, going and doing something else that numbs us to the internal experience. Every moment we can stay with that discomfort, but not 
let it take us away. That is another rep. That's like doing another bicep curl. That's strengthening the mental muscle to be able to stay and stay present. So instead of trying to escape from it, which is what we're sort of doing with these thoughts that bubble up and then we want to kind of track them down and follow them, like like my to-do list or some goal I have in my future that I think is really important or the feeling of productivity and feeling unproductive by sitting somewhere. All these things are sort of distracting us and we feel uncomfortable. So if we push through that uncomfortable feeling, it's more about confronting it and getting to this state where it eventually dissipates and you feel the joy. That's right. And it involves consistency. This is something that you have to do day in and day out. Meditation is not something that I should be confined to a certain time of day sitting on a pillow. Now, that's great to have that practice. The practice is not for more of the practice. The practice is so that you can start to do this day in and day out. You can do this when your spouse is yelling at you, or you can do this when you're stuck in traffic. You can find that inner stillness inside of you and not have your mind take you away from your presence. What does your practice look like today as far as when you meditate or how often? I usually practice once a day in the morning when I first wake up. And that is something that I just do on my own by myself. And then, like I said, when I'm just doing everyday, day-to-day things, I'm always focused on my breath. That is something that I have trained myself to do. I probably have an awareness of my breath. I would say at this point, about 90% of the time of my waking hours. Now, every once in a while, I'll still lose track of it. But most of the time, I'm focused on my breath. That is not to say that it is dominating my thoughts at all. It's quite the opposite. By focusing on my breath, I actually am more likely to have thoughts that are only necessary thoughts versus mental chatter. Because when I'm focused on my breath, I'm settled down. I'm at peace inside of myself. And so then the activities that I take, the structures that I implement in my day are based on intention versus on some kind of thought about what I should be doing. What advice would you give someone like me who is sort of a a meditative weakling who's showing up at the gym? What would you suggest as far as getting started, especially in these times of COVID and all these changes we're going through. And I could really see the benefit of something like this, but how would you recommend I get started? A couple of things. We want to understand the logic behind it. We don't want to just get into it because it sounds like people are talking about it and we just have some sort of abstract notion of its benefits. We want to understand the science behind it. We want to understand what's really going on. For those people, including yourself, I would suggest doing some reading. There's a great book by Michael Singer called The Untethered Soul. It's a very popular book. He's brilliant, a really enlightened guy, really peaceful guy. And he also happened to be a CEO of a company that he sold to WebMD for over a billion dollars. So he was a no-joke businessman as well. The Untethered Soul really explains all of this stuff in a conceptual format that's really easy to grasp. So understanding it first intellectually is 
important because if we don't understand something, we're not going to commit to a daily practice of it. Why would we do it? So that's the first part is understanding why you're doing what you're doing intellectually. Now, the next part of that is you have to give yourself a lot of patience. This takes a tremendous amount of patience. As a culture, we're oriented towards doing, and that's the only way that most people can feel like they are being productive. But doing towards what? What are we doing towards? What is the end result? More stress? More anxiety? What is all of this doing? The part that's missing And this is the part that the ancient mystics were always teaching is the being, the receiving. We are not human doings. We are human beings. And yet, as a culture, we've been conditioned to perceive ourselves as human doings. We only value ourselves based on that which we can accomplish. We have to practice being. We have to practice just not doing. And that is the practice of meditation, is the practice of non-doing, the practice of just being. That's why it's so damn hard. People think, God, I'm not doing anything. I'm not accomplishing anything. Why is it? I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. Well, of course, because that's not the point. The point is not to get anywhere. If you think you're supposed to get somewhere, you're still in the mind. You're still lost in your thoughts. You're still lost in your idea of what it's supposed to create for you. And that's just a distraction. There's a number of successful business professionals and investors that are active meditators. One that comes to mind is Ray Dalio. When you read his book, Principles, he talks about finding transcendental meditation early on. Practice of meditation has always been a part of his daily routine. And it just is a great example of if you want to get the most out of your day, if you want to be successful in defining success as being there and being present and being part of something bigger than yourself, then you've got to take time to tap into that. You have to take time to step back, quiet your mind, slow down, listen deeply. It's going slow to go fast. If you don't, you are always going to be defining success by arbitrary measurements. It's never going to feel like success deep down inside of you. You're always going to feel like there's something that's not quite fulfilling because you're connected to arbitrary measurements and external criteria. You're not actually connecting to a deeper sense of purpose and success. Sam, this has been a wonderful and enlightening conversation. Where can people find out more about you and what you do in your practice? Well, you can go to my website, which is zenwarriortraining.com. You can follow me on Instagram, which is at zenwarriortraining. Great. Again, thanks for being on The Good Life, Sam. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Sean. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.